on this week's episode 7 of the Digest Show brought to you by Black Rectangle Collective, Joshua and I will be fighting for our country and for our lives. We'll be fighting on the rooftops. We'll fight them in the streets. We'll be fighting in the fields, in the land, the sea, and air. But first, we gotta go get our friends off this damn beach. Let's go! Josh, I'd like to begin this episode with a personal question for you. If you had a boat, what would you name it? You know, that's uh, an easy one for me because I actually do dream of owning a boat. And the answer is the Bertha Lou, named after my grandmother, Bertha Louise. Well, that's sentimental. I'm a businessman. You know what I'd name my boat? Hit me. The Digest Show Boat. (laughs) (laughs) On episode seven of today's program, we'll be delving into Christopher Nolan's written, directed, and produced 2017 war epic, Dunkirk. This is my favorite war movie of all time. How do you feel about this one? Yeah, uh, I feel the same way, and uh, I'll throw another accolade on top of it right now. I think it's one of, if not the best movie made in the last 10 years. It's definitely one of. Yeah, I agree. It's breathtaking visually, sonically. The story is interesting. I can't wait to sink our teeth into this one. Yes. Before we do so, as per tradition... Please join me this week on the back of the DVD so we get a little prep before we do our deep dive, whether it's been a little time before you've seen the film or you're choosing to listen to beforehand. Here we go. The story unfolds on land, sea, and air as hundreds of thousands of British and Allied troops are trapped on the beaches of Dunkirk with enemy troops closing in. RAF Spitfires engage the enemy in the skies above the channel, trying to protect the defenseless men below. Meanwhile, hundreds of small boats, manned by both military officers and civilians alike, are mourning a desperate rescue effort, risking their lives in a race against time to save even a fraction of their army. Desperate times for our British friends in this one. Yes, yes, indeed. This is a tense movie. Very tense movie. That, that, uh, that little background definitely sets it up for it. It does. I mean, it's a tense movie about arguably one of the most i mean i guess charismatic even though that's personification but one of the most charismatic war tales you know that we have like this is up there with anything you can really think of as one of the most spectacular military moments in a war you know dunkirk man yeah we're gonna flesh that out uh next but before we do that i want to talk about what your first uh, memories of seeing this film are and we can talk about a little bit why we chose this one for you yeah. what's your first memory <laughs> my first memory is kind of a funny story um you know i'm not uh, a spring chicken anymore so the first time in my life i ever discovered what indigestion could do oh um, i forgot about this uh was when i went on a very anticipated trip with a, a good friend of mine to the hollywood theater in portland to watch uh, you know, Dunkirk on opening day, you know, I think it was 70 millimeter IMAX and they, you know, Hollywood is retrofit for that. It's one of the few. Um, and, you know, we were super pumped and it was a friend I hadn't hung out with in a while. And he's like, I had been eating ba- at that point. I had been eating vegan and 
the dude was like, come on, man. I found this great barbecue place. You're from North Carolina. You got to eat. And I'm like, I know. I love barbecue. Let's do it. Fuck it. Let's do it. And boy, bad decision because I sat in pain through that whole fucking movie. But I will say I even in pain, like dripping sweat in an air conditioned theater, uh, it was fucking amazing, like absolutely amazing, even with like gut pain that I'd never felt before. It was awesome. So that's really my first memory is bad barbecue pain. You know? Bad barbecue pain in Dunkirk. Yes. Two things that have never been spoken in the same sentence. Never. You're welcome, Chrissy Nolan. <laughs> Chrissy Nolan. Uh, mine's short and sweet. I just It was summertime release as per usual for Chrissy, and I went by myself to the matinee, and had the hairs on the on my arm stand on end for an hour and forty five minutes, and I, I knew I, I love war movies. I'm a sucker for it, like any you know a lot of dudes are, and I I wanted to see what what this man would do with it, and I was not disappointed. And I, I again seeing Christy Nolan movies in the theater, unless there's a pandemic happening, highly recommend. One of those directors, you got to see it in the theater. You just have to. You got to have that. Theater full of Dolby surround speakers blaring every yeah you you the big but sometimes big you screen. still can't understand anybody in the movie but well we I can talk about that commentary on that to come okay uh, we thought for this episode we would give a little just a little more historical context as this is uh, about a historical moment in the history of World War II so I, we can do this together Joshua basically what's happening here is. The British, Belgium, and French forces have been pinned against the English Channel. Um, the Nazi army has, in just six weeks during the uh, Battle of France, has charged through Europe and with speed and power have completely taken occupied France and have pushed these forces back to the small town Dunkirk in the north of France. It seems impending that Britain will be invaded, taken over, uh, defeated by the Nazis. So these forces have to ration their resources, their firepower, um, because the bigger battle is coming next. So there's this balance of how do we get these men out of here without you know, burning through our resources? Can you add on to maybe a little more context for what's going on here? Yeah, I mean, I think I mean, to, to literally to add on to what you're saying, jump in in parts. Like, so you have British soldiers trapped on a beach in France. They're there because they were trying to lend a hand to their Western neighbor, um, who at that point in time was supposedly, air quotes, the greatest military force on earth. Um, and Hitler's goons. And their mega stash of, of fucking methamphetamines. Um, These dudes were high as a kite. Yeah, they shocked basically the world by the world. coming. They they took France in such speed that I just don't think anyone could have ever thought. And so you have these British soldiers there again trying to lend a hand to their friends, their allies, um, and they're shocked and they're trapped. And the reason I start with that is to just add the next part of that, which is the other side of the coin. They're trying to help a friend. What happens when they're trying to defend their own island? And if they lose 300,000 of their men, which is a chunk of the British Army at that point, um, they're not going to be successful. So I think 
it, that's my biggest thing to add is the shock that the German army brought um, during World War II. I mean, it's the same plan that the German military took in, in you know, World War One, which was unsuccessful. But I think this time it was fueled by meth and really hit hard, you know. Fueled by meth. Today's episode. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> no, 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 no. The historical significance of this moment um, uh, is enormous. I think for me, for me personally, what what I take away from it is Winston Churchill using it as like this moral ratification of of English spirit, and he takes you know it is a colossal as he co- says colossal military disaster, but what he does by showing how the English people rally and come together as civilians save soldiers instead of the other way around, you know he he uses it as a rally cry and really you know strengthens the the morality and the support of the war in public which changes everything um and then when the allied forces are fortified with the entry of the americans uh, it's a big turning point in the war so just wanted to give a little backstory for y'all on this one yeah absolutely it's and one, one thing i want to just throw in there real quick about this is uh before we go into the the next bit is when you're when we're talking when you were just talking one thing that came to my mind a word is fabric you hear that term the fabric of a society and you know i think about terms like that a lot and this one to me becomes very clear it's this woven thread of the british citizens and what they endured and actually europeans let, let's be completely frank about that. It's not just British people, but Europeans. The, the, there is a bond that you get when you endure what those people endured. And it's, yeah, you're right. It's, it's, a, it's a glorious tale. It, it really is. We were talking last night, and you kind of put it in perspective. Like if Charlotte, or I am, or Salem, where you are, is getting bombed in the midst of a world conflict, like... It, it, that didn't. We've never had that affect us in real life, you know. So, no. so knowing that the Nazis have been bombing London and the greater area, you know, and these people, yeah, fabric's a good word. I like that. That's beautiful, and it's a big part of this movie, which we're gonna get to the spirit and the Britishness. It's a very British movie, as it should be. <laughs> yes, it is. It is. So, uh, comparing and cr- contrasting to other war films and films about war. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, there's films like, like Patton and a bridge too far. And then there's films like saving private Ryan, which is, you know, a romantic film. And in, in many ways, those older films I mentioned kind of capture the more, you know, uh, masculinity and austereness of, of, of going to war and fighting. Um, how is this movie different from those for you? And how are they the same? Because to me, this is a very modern film. You know, we're going to talk about old Chrissy Nolan here and, his his he puts his own flavor and he puts his own sheen on this film both in the storytelling and visually and sonically um but it is it is a world war ii epic like it just is so for me it's it's different because of what christopher nolan does excuse me chrissy nolan and but it does play into the stoicism and the strength of these people fighting to not only fight their enemy, but fighting to survive, which is something I think it has in common. Like these slow shots of Kenneth Branagh's face, this you know really famous Englishman, he's playing a composite of British military leaders. Um, that that reminds me of those old you know films. But there is this you know romantic side of it. Um, the music is beautiful, and that reminds me of the more modern takes on war. Your thoughts? Yeah, uh, you broke it into kind of two kind of 
movie sets of movies like drama like romanticizing war and dramatization of war versus more of a try to tell the truth version i would throw another set of twos in there um there are war movies and then there are movies that are set during wartime right like so this is a war movie um but like something like schindler's list or um english patient those are movies that are set during wartime right yeah what i think sets dunkirk apart is the fact that it brings storytelling and cinematography techniques from movies set during wartime and puts it in a war movie. Um, I think that's a big part of it for me is, is the way the, sto- the story in this movie is more engaging. Like Saving Private Ryan – uh, you know, there's a story there, for example. And, you know, we'll, we'll probably reference that movie because it's, you know, in our lifetimes, it's the most popular World War II movie made. Like, like Sure. Um, but that movie has a story. It's, you know, Save Private Ryan. But really, it's not. It's actually a different story. It's the story of the captain played by Tom Hanks and his, you know. So it's, it's, it's the story in, in that movie is a vehicle for a war movie. And the story in this movie is the driving force. It just happens during war, and they had to figure out how the fuck to make that happen, right? And there's yeah. a difference there. And I think that that's, to me, is the most, is the biggest thing. And I think the one thing I will say, and I'm going to pass the baton straight back to you, is I've seen Patton and I've seen Save It Private Ryan. I love Patton, um, but I do think Dunkirk is, is the best that I've seen, uh, but I will just say I have not seen Bridge on the River Kwai, and I have not seen uh, with friend of the show Bill Holden, by the way. Um, and oh, yeah. I have I saw that I have not seen Great Escape, starring Steve McQueen. So maybe those are better. I, I can't speak to that, but as far as what I've seen, Dunkirk is the best representation. It's my favorite as well. Yeah. I want to talk uh, something that's different about it. Is again the civilians are rescuing soldiers being. A huge part of it that and the survival aspect of it more so than the the fighting and action there's there's not a lot of like back and forth gunfire there's not you know there's huge beautiful you know uh dogfight in the air scenes like that's and we're going to talk about that but there's it's more so about like i said the survival of the group of young men traveling along the beach and eventually out to the water trying to survive and the civilians rescuing the the heroes yes that's just really different and not what you see typically absolutely different and if i could uh, elaborate on that or kind of maybe phrase just maybe phrase it a different way it's like if you so if you take Patton for example right Patton is a great fucking film with great acting and but it's from the perspective of a general like it's that room full of generals moving pieces on a map and having arguments and heated debates and flashes of war this movie is the this is the perspective of citizens at war this is the movie of citizens at war because the soldiers at that point those are just citizens probably poor people who just needed to defend their fucking country and they're they it's the perspective of the soldier of the every every man right you know when Christopher Nolan was looking to cast the film, he was struck by how young so many of these initial participants in the war were. And he went out of his way to cast young, young men. And 
Uh, yes. And it's it, it, it hits harder because they are so young. They're just like these, you know, late teen, early 20 kids. Um, two boats that they're in sink, you know, they're they're on the verge of death for an hour and 45 minutes. Yeah, they are. They are. And to to add something to what you just said about the young actors, like they purposefully like, you know, went looking for that because um, one of the things I learned in, the, in watching the special features is Nolan and, mm. and the, whole, the whole cast were, you know, they had this idea that seasoned actors, if you put them on a movie set and you blow a bunch of shit up. They know, like, it's, they are like, I'm safe. They're not going to hurt me. If they hurt me, they're going to have so much fucking insurance. You know, they think that way, you know. But when you get, like, an 18, 19-year-old kid who's on their first ever major movie production, you know, and you put them in the fucking sand and you're blowing shit up and it's real it fucking explosions, you get, like, raw, more realistic reactions. reactions. Yeah. Yes. And they also wanted to be true to the reality, which was these were poor kids and those who felt the, the, the need or the call to sign up from better means. But mostly poor people who had no other options in life or just got forced into it and they're there fighting to do everything they can to save. And that's why Tommy, which, by the way, the character names in this movie don't don't fucking mean a goddamn thing on purpose, by the way. But Tommy, our main character, that's why he's when he finally is on a safe boat, he just says, take me home. Just just take me home. The first time he feels safe, just take me home, you know, and it's it's because he's just an every person. And that I'm glad that we got on that, because that to me is the key difference between this and other war movies It's the point of perspective from which it's told. Absolutely. Another thing that's different for me is how real it is. We're going to talk about camera work and cinematography and, and things like that. We're going to detail that. But for me, like learning that the majority of the planes are real, um, that they're shooting on the motherfucking beach. They're on the actual beach. They are um, on Dunkirk, dude. They're yes. on Dunkirk Beach. Book your uh, vacation now. And the, like the sea foam that they're wading through on the beach um, – it just looks real. I, this movie, by the way, has a great trailer. And it was a big deal. Remember when it dropped? We were all just like, oh, shit. And the I trailer do. looks like it's the movie is beautiful. It's gorgeous. But it looks almost like a documentary. And getting that flash of it in the trailer was, like, shocking. Well, first off, this is World War II in color. <laughs> like, you yeah, know what I mean? Like, 100%. It, it, yeah. It definitely feels that way. But... One thing, just like not specific about Dunkirk, but specific about Christopher Nolan, dude. The way this guy does his, tra- he's my favorite trailer maker. He makes in some Hollywood. badass trailers because because he never gives too much away. He keeps you completely fucking guessing. Like, I mean, I wonder if that's like something that's been nagging at him his whole career. Because, like, fuck, in this new movie that's coming out. The the literally the main character's name is protagonist. That's what it's billed right. as. I mean, like, there's this anonymity. He keeps you from knowing anything that's gonna happen. And I I just want to say I have to point that out. I love the way this this person produces trailers for their films. It 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 really this, is. If next this level. whole if this whole movie thing doesn't work out, this guy's making Chrysler commercials for the just rest of his fucking life. Absolutely, he is. Can make a beautiful commercial. Beautiful. 
Uh, let's move on to our director this week. One Christy Nolan, as we call him in the show affectionately. He's become one of the premier filmmakers on planet Earth. His movies are an event. It's a big deal. Even through the pandemic, his new movie, Tenet, that's coming out, has clawed its way and it into culture. It's being shown in some theaters around the world and will be available for home viewing. But he's become a blockbuster filmmaker, and he makes blockbuster movies. He, he definitely does. Um, what, what is it about you that excites – what about what is it about Christopher Nolan that excites you? So when you go to see a movie, what do you what just why do you go? Like you said, you went opening night. Um, you went as early as you possibly could. What what is it about his movies that 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 does that to you? Uh, well, a couple things. First, first off, let's just state I've every major full length motion motion picture that this director has made, I've seen. Like every one of them, I may not have seen them twice. Uh, some of the older ones, especially, but everything he's made, um, I've seen at least once. Um, but I think it's the fact that what makes there, there's a group of filmmakers that that kind of get me, um, and I think really the three of them are Tarantino. Paul Thomas Anderson and Christopher Nolan. Like when they have a new movie coming out, and for me, I might even would throw Wes Anderson in that group. I get excited because those four filmmakers make, they create worlds and they do it well. They do it really, really well. But what Nolan does better than any one of those people I named and, and, and others is he makes a blockbuster movie, like you said but one that can be artistic and one that can win best cinematography and one that like, you know, is meticulously thought out. And I love the detail that he brings to his film. So that's for me, it's the, the fact that he can craft a blockbuster and make it have the vibe of, uh, of a fucking Paul Thomas Anderson movie, you know, like, which doesn't happen often. I like some of Christopher Nolan's movies. I love this movie. I don't like some of them. I I understand that he makes beautiful pieces of art, and like he obviously makes great films that people love. But sometimes I just think he does a lot of things that are like unnecessary in the way that he concocts film. His obsession with time bothers me. Like this film, just this film, for instance, like. This story, I have a quote for you. Can I just read this quote? I yeah. just, folks, just bear with me. I'm a bit of a natural, inherent contrarian. And <laughs> I just want to delve into why this guy is so popular because I don't know if it's just because I don't like, I try and stay away from mainstream things or whatever, but it, it bug. I'm just going to be honest, it bugs me. I, I think, like, like I said, I think some of his, the things that he does are unnecessary. I think he is a powerful guy in the industry. His movies always come out in the summertime. He does like IMAX trailers before movies. Like he, for two of the Batman movies and for inception, he work, works his way into like doing special feature previews. He's a, he's a, he's a masterful worker of the industry, but I just have this, this quote. He says, um, he's talking about why the story is layered and why it's uh, structured the way that it is. And he says, to mingle these different versions of history, one had to mix the temporal strata 
Hence the complicated structure of the film. I don't know what the fuck that means. I have no idea what that means. You sure that quote wasn't about Interstellar? Come on, you sure? That's a good question. <laughs> That's a good question. And That's I, okay. And I, That's and my, my gripe with him too, for real. And no my shit. argument is, and my argument is that the different motifs that come up in his films are all the same. Again, this film ends with a of someone reading a, a monologue over slow <laughs> shots of our principal leads, which is a thing that he does. Um, I, I love this movie. I don't want to shit on Christopher Nolan right now. I really don't. But I just want to offer a little back and forth here. I, I mean, do you see where I'm coming from and oh, why it bothers me? Why okay. it annoys me? Let's shit on Christopher Nolan. Like, let's just shit on him for a second. Like, let's just I say first. I think that is a silly Dunkirk silly is movie. to his. Well, we'll get there. Dunkirk is his best movie. It's his, it, it's his finest film. It is his, it's his masterpiece. And, and, and Dunkirk holds up against anything. Any other film you want, like, it doesn't matter what it is. There, the other film might be better, but Dunkirk will have its merits against it. There's no doubt about that. But there's something about Christopher Nolan's films. Like, I'm not, um, you know... I try to be uh, I try to stay humble as best I can. And I'm not a brilliant individual, but I'm also not an idiot. You know, I I went to school, I read nonfiction books on He the, reads nonfiction. I, I do. Like, you know, I read thousand page nonfiction books. Like I'm not an idiot, but like I feel like sometimes after I watch Christopher Nolan's movies, like I should I have enrolled in like four semesters in advanced physics? at you know cow fucking poly before i watched interstellar would would that have made it more enjoyable like i don't know you know and memento is like a fucking sticky note goddamn mess like i mean i like it it again his movies do grab me i, I love his his aesthetic i genuinely do but like i, I feel like sometimes it's like his movies are like Christopher Nolan saying to you subliminally, I'm smarter than you and I'm a really good filmmaker and I'm flexing on you super fucking hard right now. So look at my muscles. That's how it feels. One had to mix the temporal strata. Hence the, compli <laughs> the complicated structure. What the fuck does that even mean? Need anything? That sums it all up. I'm glad you pulled that quote. It is no doubt. I mean, I mean, the first time I saw this movie, I obviously raved about my experience, but I didn't know what was going on. I didn't understand the timeline of Killian Murphy's character and how he was in this shit, and then he got here. I didn't understand. I didn't catch like that the last plane that goes down that Kenneth Branagh's character, you know, watches misty eyed, is the last kill of Tom Hardy's character. Like all these overlapping storylines from the mole to the sea to the land. Uh, the sky, rather. I didn't get all of that, and I don't know how anybody could. And I don't. And my argument is that it, I didn't get all of that, and I still love the movie. So oh, yes. So is it necessary to? I get it, dude. If you don't believe time is a, if you believe time is like a construct, like get it, dude. Like that's fine. But so let me let me just so some commentary on the time part, okay? You're better this, at unpacking that stuff than me. So well, take, no, but take this this. This particular film of his is the is the only time to me that the time thing feels like it was 
it was used properly, like as a device that actually worked. And the reason I say that is because it's a it's almost like a practical approach to to the timing. I mean, so we start on land, right? Well, traveling by land is the slowest option you have, right? So land has its own timeline in this film, okay? Then we go to sea because sea is the second slowest timeline that, or, or you know mode of transportation that we see in the film, and it has its own timeline. And then we go to the air, and the air has its own timeline because it's the quickest mode of transportation. And I love what what's so to me what's so masterful about the time. It, before I get into this, I just want to say I fucking wholeheartedly agree with you. I hate the way. No, it's okay. Dude, you you're being a dude, Christy Nolan defender. It's cool. No, now. I'm not. I'm de- I'm defending his use in Dunkirk, honestly, because the rest of it just feels okay. like this swirl that you go down. So I just want to make that clear. But in Dunkirk, it's like I think Dunkirk is the movie where he finally like like told, he shut the shit out of his head and got over himself and just made a really fucking good movie because the way the timing works is like you start with the slowest, you go to the second, you go to the fastest and you, and everything coalesces at one moment. Like, you know, everything, everything comes and it together has a at point. the right it has time. A, yeah. It has an it, end point and it, has it absolutely point. does. And it has and, a vocal point. And the swirl does. doesn't like go into the abyss. And no, like this. it there, doesn't. There's, there's a reason. The, the swirl in this movie is like watching the coin go down the big ramp at the grocery store when we were kids. You know, you'd put the little quarter in and it would roll, 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 roll. You know, it, it happens at the right moment. It's satisfying. And, and to comment on one last thing, though, you said you didn't get it the first time, nor did I. Absolutely, I'm nor sure did I. I'm sure most people d- don't. No, it was the second and third time. Is the second time I realized something was like just way off, and I didn't understand. And the third time I was able to piece it all together. But what I like about that is my favorite filmmakers are people that I think of that that could just be artists, right? Again, that's my background. That's what I bring to this. And for me, I just keep thinking like a good painting. You shouldn't. You know, when you see a really, really, really good painting, you shouldn't want to just look at it one time and think you understood it. You should want to look at it once and you should feel a little confused by it. You should leave it and feel a little confused and you should contemplate it and you should want to come back to it and ask it more questions. You know, and I feel like... Yeah, but yeah, you don't want to feel like an idiot, though. <laughs> no, you don't. And I just think that Dunkirk is the is the lesser example of all of Christopher Nolan's movies of making you feel like an idiot. Idiot. I mean, Interstellar literally made like I got a fucking A in AP Physics. Shout out Miss Wallace, who will never listen to this podcast. But I got an A in AP Physics in fucking senior year of high school. I'm not like Josh. I, I'm listen, not- everyone. Joshua reads books, and he got an A. In science and high Fuck school. you, He's buddy. Smart. I'm just trying to say, Interstellar is like, I fucking, like, come on, dude. You're on some shit that I would need a goddamn PhD to, like, be able to comprehend. Like, I get it. It's just a ride. But, like, dude, tone it fucking down. <laughs> I'm just saying. Chrissy's on one. I mean, this dude notoriously wears three-piece suits on set. He's a, oh, he's a stopwatch guy, which the we'll moment you we talk see about him, the sound. On the Batman Begins set with his little, his little handheld, eyepiece, handheld, 
yeah. looking through his lens with the leather come on. down his fucking come on get out of here dude but I the dude makes that, good dude. movies he's a good filmmaker you can't deny that did you know before this well we talked when we first started putting the show together it came up that he's uh, colorblind you gotta uh, it came up but I don't have any details on this you need to hit me with these deets bro He's red. Cast a whole new light. He's red, blue, colorblind. So he doesn't see those colors. Okay. So he's red, blue, colorblind, which means he doesn't see red or blue. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Just trying to make sure I understand. Wait, wait, wait. Because sometimes it's like if you're red, blue, colorblind, you don't see like yellow and green. You know what I mean? I just I don't, looked up. I just looked up red, blue, colorblind. It said there is nothing called red, blue, colorblind. I suppose you're looking for red, green, colorblind, which is what he is. Human. We're fucking human, folks. Okay. Leave us alone. Sorry. But, but but my point of bringing that up is, I think that really informs the palette, the color palettes that he chooses, and the colors that he it informs his pictures. Like at, when I heard that, I was like, oh my god! Not so much the co- the individual colors that he is not. Capable of seeing, but the fact that his his ability to decipher color is somehow altered. I'm like, yeah, no wonder all his movies like look the same. There are two things about Christopher Nolan that like there are two Christopher Nolan like things for me. There's the Christopher Nolan filter, which is in every single one of his movies. Probably what we're talking about, for, except for following because it's in black and white. Um, but. Secondly, there's the Christopher Nolan hiss, which is this sound thing that is achieved by many different, you know, means, right? But the end is the same. It's this cerebral, like, shit's fucked up right now, and I don't know what's going on. And it's like, ah, yeah. It's, it's, Go and get Nolan it. Hiss. Shit's tense, man. It, it is. It's the Nolan hiss. So there's the Nolan filter and there's the Nolan hiss. And like, I hear you on the colorblind thing. That totally could inform that shit. No doubt. <laughs> there's the, we're going to talk about the sound later, but there's a point um, when the two, uh, the planes are fighting each other, they're chasing each other. And it's a really tense moment. The uh, soldiers are just starting to get rescued by civilians. And there's like the, the, the I, I don't know if it's Hans Zimmer or if it's the sound design. Done by a team of people, including Christopher Nolan, but it does the choppy like, and I'm like, it, it's like, it's a little over the top for me. Um, you know, I respectfully disagree. I don't think I can, after having seen this movie about a half dozen times now, I don't think I can think of a single part the auditory experience of this movie that I, I don't like. I can't think of a single thing. Not one. Agree to disagree. Precisely, motherfucker. Uh, can we let Chrissy get up? Have we kicked him enough? Yeah, I mean, and I'll it, let me just say, to end, I think the dude is a, a magnificent filmmaker. I really, really do. I, I think he's he is as good a director as anybody. I just don't know. I think sometimes I wish that Nolan would like take a couple of weeks off, like trip some mushrooms and like have a good time 
and like let loose a little bit because I just think he takes himself so seriously. Yeah, I think he takes himself too, too seriously. Yeah, uh, there's not a lot of uh, dialogue or speaking parts in this film at all, and I'm kind of glad because that's another thing of his is I can't always understand people. <laughs> So yeah, I don't think one last that, swing. Sorry, yeah. I took one last swing at your boy, your favorite filmmaker, Christopher Nolan. I'm sorry. <laughs> my, fuck you. Everybody knows my favorite filmmaker is QT, dude. Don't get, don't, don't even don't get there. Chris Nolan's like not even in the top ten for me. Okay, we let we let Mr. Nolan get back up. He dressed off his three piece suit. He's going off for tea. He's very, yes. very successful man. He doesn't need us to. Telling him what we do and do not like about him. And thank you, Mr. Nolan, for this particular film. Congratulations. As we delve into our uh, analyzing portion of today's episode, we thought we'd do an homage to today's director by doing three shining moments inside three shining moments. There's three. What's that? It's kind of like uh, Inception of Shining Moments. Yeah, it is. That's exactly what it is. It's, it's some shining moments inside of shining moments. Yeah, it you said that. It doesn't get old. I'm sorry. Come on, come on. It doesn't get old. You can fucking pick fun of Inception for like 20 years. I could, and I probably will. Okay, but we're going to do our old <laughs> our, uh, three, two, one here. We're going to start with the storytelling and the British patriotism and presence in this movie. It's a huge part of it. We're telling a British story with a British filmmaker and British actors. Um, and it, uh, it's, it's the emotional part of the film. The, my favorite representation of this part of it is, is the scene when the, over the crest of the horizon, the civilian weekend yachts start sailing closer towards the soldiers on the beach. Kenneth Branagh, um, portraying the military leader, sees them. The music swells. Hans Zimmer's music swells. It's um, it's a, a, a piece called. It's a, a play on a piece called Nimrod, which is uh, I, I don't. We don't need to go into the a Green Day yeah. song, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I win. Thank you. Oh, that was good. So Billy Joe Armstrong is playing my favorite guitar player of all time. <laughs> oh, I was going to get really serious there. Sorry. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> I need to get my shit together. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> Okay, focus. <laughs> so it's this really emotional. It's this really emotional part of the movie, and the boats are coming in. They're they're coming to save the boys. The music swells. The soundtrack takes form, and the the Union Jacks are are waving in the wind. And it's the most it's this uplifting moment of the film that they're they're coming to save everybody, and uh, it just gets me in my feels like super fucking hard. Oh yeah, can I I I want to drop two things on you. The first is just to relate to what we were just talking about. That's a great moment in the sound because Zimmy, he drops that Nolan hiss that's happening. That Nolan hiss is happening because uh, yeah, he, he, exactly. 
gets it and goes into the triumphant cue the triumphant music folks Absolutely. you know and it, it really is it i think which leads perfectly into my second point about this is to allude to another movie this is the moment when fucking dude picks up the flag in the patriot and is like no fuck it we're not going down we're gonna keep fucking charging that's the same moment in this movie it's one of those like goosebumps you're like this these people are fucking legit they're not going down easy you know it's a great great moment they come in and and they're he's like where are you from oh i know where you're from I, I, Captain, like they're getting down. Yes. Uh, I, I fucking cried when I rewatched it for the show. Oh shit, dude! I cry at like three different parts in this movie. Uh, easy, so easy, good. easy. Uh, so good. Um, we talked earlier about the how oh, it captures like the Brit. We talked about the British perseverance, um, and it's the spirit of this movie, and it's, it, I love it. It is, and I would say, one of the things I love about this this movie is this story feels like someone living in Britain, you know, their, you know, granddad or their father told them this story because they experienced it firsthand. And that story somehow got passed along and passed along and became this movie. And, you know, I felt that way before I even knew, but one of the things I learned in the special features of the, of this Blu-ray is they absolutely interviewed lots of veterans. That was one of the first steps of research that they did is they interviewed the people that were yeah. there. And they used as, as much authenticity as they could. But I just love that this story, even from someone who doesn't dive deep into the making of the movie, you can tell it feels like, a real story like someone could have you know your your granddad could have told you this story when you were like a a young boy and you're asking you know what was it like in the war and they kind of tell well let me tell you this the the story of dunkirk you know and it just i love that part about this this film a lot absolutely it's a cherished you know british story and it's in good hands yeah absolutely um anything else on that portion for you um, on the Britishness, the last thing I have briefly is the fucking Spitfires, dude. Oh, that's right. One of the greatest weapons in the entire war. The design made it easy to upgrade it and modify it. So they were able, like, you know, as technology got better throughout the war, they were able to swap parts out into the same airplanes, which kept them having, you know, more planes online. And they were just faster and more agile. And, and arguably flown by more competent pilots, tr- truthfully. I mean, the Japanese planes you the, also... You mean the British you know, pilots weren't high on meth? I don't think they were. <laughs> <laughs> but they were also flying far superior machines than the Luftwaffe. So that's, that's a thing. But I wanted to point that out about the Britishness of this movie because that's some straight-up ingenuity right there. No doubt. Mark Ryland's character, old pop, he, oh. like, he has this sense... It has a sense of pride when Love those planes it. fly over, and uh, you just you feel it. You know, you later find out his son uh, was killed in action early on in the war, and that that's a main reason. But just him being an Englishman and and or a British person rather, and and seeing that ingenuity fly overhead, he comments on the Rolls Royce engine. I can't What's believe I just, I can't believe I just said that without stuttering. What's that? What What was it? What's his great line to George to to Georgie? 
So he tells the great, greatest, uh, great, is it greatest aircraft ever made or what? What's he? Oh, get the fuck back under deck, George. That's what he said. No, I don't. I'm sorry, I don't remember the exact quote. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway, a- I just before we move on to the next uh, shining moment, the last thirty minutes of this movie is so good and yeah. it's so emotional, mm-hmm. and it in in that last thirty minutes it, it makes you want to root for these guys. And I just want to give a shout out to the last thirty minutes. Also, before we move on, did you know that Michael Caine's in this movie? No, clearly not. He is the voice on uh, when the planes are communicating. The squadron leader, when Tom yeah. Hardy's character, and he's advising them uh, where to, uh, how to proceed with their mission. At, at the that, beginning of their segment, yeah. yeah. That's that's Michael Caine's voice. <laughs> that's fucking awesome. Another Englishman. That's fucking awesome. And uh, another very commonly used, I think it's five or six movies of Christopher Nolan's that he's been in. Okay, moving on to our second shining moment. I think these... As we go, they get more important. They definitely do. So our second shiny moment is the cinematography, my friend. Oh, my fucking God. Yeah. Great quote. Great this, quote. This Shocking. is a fucking feat. It's this stunning, is, man. This. So they're my. using IMAX cameras, but they're using film as well. Within those cameras, is that right? You're the, you know about that stuff more than I do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's um, you know, so it's it's I mean, I I'm not a I'm not a technician, so if if any of you projectionalists are out there listening and you want to like bust my chops, go for it. Uh, but to me, I, I want to say it's on 70 millimeter, and theoretically what that means is your average camera that those of you who are our age would have grown up being photographed on by your parents would have been a 35 millimeter film camera. So a 70 millimeter camera is going to be twice as wide and then the same height. So you're going to get a lot of fucking image, right? So a shot on 70 millimeter, which is IMAX apparently. Um, and they had to use IMAX cameras, which are about the size of, you know, like a microwave effectively and then they're like 60 pounds right yeah 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 they're big um plus a lens um and you know they're they're uh they're a beast yeah and and nolan is a a handheld camera guy as much as possible you know but obviously when you're flying airplanes you can't and those are real airplanes 100 percent, folks that's not fucking cgi like three percent of what you see in the airplanes is reproduced and it's they used, not even yeah they used like to scale models i think for some of like the shots of the planes getting shot up or there's one or two close shots and they're to scale models they're like four feet long or something that they're remote controlled but other than that they are full-on replica world war ii fighter planes yeah and it's it's literally it, it's straight up I mean, Tom Hardy is flying through the fucking sky, you know, filming these scenes. They modified planes that were like a two a two seater plane. They modified them to film the pilot in the front while the plane was being flown from the back. So, like, I, I mean, the, really, like the better part of ninety five percent of what you see in the in, basically ninety five percent of what you see in all of this movie is like legitimately real, like not fake 
you know, so, uh, it's crazy, man. It is, it is. And that's a, that's a feat. So, uh, did you want to talk more about the shots at the plane and how, how incredible that is? Yeah. So just a couple of things. So first off, just on an abstract level, the choreography of the plane scenes is just, it's beautiful. I mean, and other than that, I mean, just the beauty of the earth that you see in this film. I mean, when you have this super fucking IMAX film camera capturing ocean and sky and cloud and land and all of this. It's like a fucking Nat Geo special, but better. It, it does. It does. And it, there's something just absolutely fucking beautiful for that. And, and I love another nuance. Uh, I love when the camera from the planes which, by the way, they straight up mounted IMAX film cameras on original airplanes and flew those fucking things. Like, again, this is just, I, I don't know. I'm impressed by how real this film actually is in comparison to some, some other stuff. But the way they show the water, which, which really grounds you and shows you the speed that these people are moving, um, I think that's great. And, and I think... For me, my my two favorite cinematic moments with the planes are Colin's landing scene. Um, that's just a, a, a straight up cinematic moment in general, where you you get beautiful cinematography, but you also get this really high tension. The score is peak level at that moment. Yeah, and and, and you're, you you get this beautiful landing sequence, and 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 the second one is I think maybe my favorite moment with the planes, which is kind of sentimental, I guess. Is uh, I'm not probably going to picture this, but but it's uh, fairer or fairer or whatever Tom Hardy's character Fair, is. Oh, fairer, yeah, but, yeah. You know, um, when he is coasting with no fuel There's over no the sound, beaches, and they're oh, it's it's and uh. especially he opens the top of of his rig and he's and the wind's coming in and it just it's it's a it's a gorgeous gorgeous the the whole thing is just. It's amazing what those people did. I mean, they they built airplanes for. I mean, they put IMAX cameras in the nose and tails of airplanes. They built a gimbal system on the front of a fucking helicopter that had never been built before. I mean, the people involved in this movie, which he keeps close knit in a circle, uh, did things on this movie that had never been done before. That you you're, we're going to be seeing in the next few years. You'll see shots that are using this helicopter gimbal fucking system in IMAX that they did. And, and we probably won't even notice in a few years that that's abnormal, you know, because of this. And that's cool. Special stuff. Yeah. One thing, uh, as we weave in and out of, in and out of uh, historical context with this one, there's a moment where, and it's referenced a couple of times, they're like, where the, where the fuck's the Air Force? You know, why aren't they protecting, protecting us more? Yes. Um, why, we said earlier, you know, they're, they're picking their battles and waiting for what they think is the impending big one. But also it's important to point out that in reality, what was really happening is that those few handful of German fighter pilots that didn't make it through, they got through pro protection that the RAF was already laying down surrounding the island um, of Britain. So there's resentment from the troops on the ground towards the Air Force in the movie and in real life. But in actuality, I feel like it should be pointed out that they they were doing their job. They were protecting those people, but some of them just got through. It could have been a lot worse. I guess is the point I'm trying to make. Oh, I absolutely agree, and I will I will completely clap to that because 
that's one of those situations where like I tend to be a um a grassroots people person um but that's one of those situations where when you're at an executive level and you can see things that other people can't see allocating resources to one place or another may not make sense and it may cause people to be bitter but at at a certain point you There's just a bigger know picture you have to do that to get to where you you got to get you know so i i i agree so as there are beautiful breathtaking shots there's also terrifying moments in the bellies of ships and in cold water of the english channel and something that really stood out to me um on the ground level on the land here is the 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 aggressiveness of the camera and when the boys are seemingly drowning in a ship that's getting caught up in the tide the camera's fucking all over the place and you feel like you're in there with them and then the my favorite moment of this uh, is in the beginning of the film when our protagonist and I don't know the character's name, but again, it's, it's not. It's Tommy. Oh, that's right, Tommy. Thank you. I, I don't even know if I ever heard it, but it's Tommy. He, an impending bombing is, is signaled, and there's a fighter coming in. It's going to strafe the beach with uh, ammunition, and he dives on the beach in the sand and covers his head. And behind him, we see a succession of bombs dropping and. In the sequence that puts him at risk, like, oh shit, he's next. And the camera is shaking so fucking much. And the whole screen seems to be shaking and it's so intense. And oh my God. It, I, I love how beautiful and serene and, you know, artistic and peaceful almost that these shots can have. But then it's also so intense and invasive and loud, which we'll get to next. Uh, I just wanted to point that out. Yeah, I agree. I mean, um, to to, to kind of expand on that too, I would say the camera almost acts as as soldier. You know, it's it's your you're you're a soldier when you're watching this movie. You're you're a soldier along with everybody else, and you're watching exactly what they're watching, and you feel it uh, because of exactly what you're describing. And I think, um, you know, again, Saving Private Ryan has that opening scene which is the 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 beaches storming the beaches right and it it sets the tone for that movie i think the stretcher scene in particular in particular where when tommy and the french soldier are are put put the guy on the soldier and they pick him or a stretcher and they pick him up and they're trying to run to make the ship and they're gonna make it all the way down the mole to get down to the ship. The so, mole! Shout out to the mole. Shout out to the motherfucking mole. I think that this movie has that scene as a tone setting, you know, but it, that's, it, that feels like a mini battle inside of itself. So I, I, I agree, and I love the, the, the way the camera moves itself through, through that sequence as, as well. So we've covered the air, we've covered the land, uh, we've touched on the sea, but I think you had some stuff you want to talk about as far as the boats go. The yeah, ships. I mean, well, yeah. boats and ships. Yeah, on sea, man. I got a, a couple of things. Yeah, I mean, so first off, the boat, the Moonstone, um, is a real boat that absolutely sailed. They they effectively bought it for the movie. Uh, the gentleman that sold it donated the proceeds to charity, I believe. In the credits, does it say twenty or forty? I think it's forty of the actual boats that were used in the oh. were used in the film. Oh, absolutely. Um, so the Moonstone was not. It is an era boat. I, I know, right? It is an era boat. It is, it is time appropriate. 
Um, it, 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 it makes perfect sense for uh, Mr. Dawson to own that boat, um, but it was not an actual boat that was used in the operation. However, in the crossing scene that you mentioned, like the majority of the boats that you see, like actually see in the film were real Dunkirk boats. Like absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And then they made a point of that. Um, but I think there's a couple of things that stand out to me. I think the first, um, is just to bring a little dose of that reality that I keep speaking to the, the scene where they're, um, they're trying to pull in Cillian Murphy's character off of the sunken ship. And you see, because they're at sea, like, they're actually at sea, and, you know, they're filming on the boats. This is, again, not Steadicam, you know, drone shots or anything like that. So, um, you the violence, the violence of the ocean, when they're trying to pull him in, that struck me. I've never been out to deep sea i've i've swam in the ocean i've gone out past where my my parents wanted me to go you know but like i've never that that was intense for me and that was a moment that stood out yeah the other scenes when they're pulling tommy aboard uh and they're fighting for it's like the apex of the film's tension it is and they're fighting to pull him aboard the boat and it takes 30 seconds of his face breaking through the oil-filled water showing you that like water is merciless it, it does, and I also, since you mentioned that particular scene, one thing I will say is I love the dramatic usage of that scene. I mean, because we Tommy is our character, and that moment when Tommy comes up out of the water is the moment when the three timelines coalesce. Yeah. That, you know, and that's... that's that's it yeah. because you're left you like you know like you're watching and you just you just know somehow Tommy's okay but you're also watching people that you visually remember him being on that little uh oil ship or so you know tugboat where it could end. yeah you know and you see them on fire and you're like fuck and you know you saw Tommy come out and he was covered in oil and you're like fuck you know you don't know and there's this random person being t- so i just think that that's a that's a beautiful, dramatic moment in the film, and I think that it's it's great. It's my I favorite that, section of the film. Yeah, I love that they use that to to wrap the timelines all together at one time, and then from Amazing. there, everything's happening at once. Um, but the last thing on the sea I'll say is just I love the juxtaposition of these crammed ass fucking shots inside the boat, mostly the ones on the moonstone, uh, because again, you've got this fucking heavy ass. You know, IMAX camera, again, the size of a fucking microwave. And the dude who's shooting a lot of it is about my size. So I'm sure he wasn't a happy dude with all these people. I mean, because the whole crew is on that boat when they're shooting. Like, everybody's there. It's, like, crowded as fuck, right? Um, And I just love the juxtaposition between those tight fucking claustrophobic scenes and then the ones from the boats out onto the ocean and just like these wide just super dramatic shots of the water and it makes you feel just this this kind of primitive feeling to to earth you know love that absolutely were you referencing the cinematographer i I believe so yes the hoyt van hoytema correct yes that guy best name of the show so far yeah i mean I, his, I want, his first name is in his last name hoyt van hoytema, hoytema. Uh, it's great dude it's great that guy is a that guy's a g 
I watched like today. Had to I watched, be award winning. I watched GoPro footage of him flying in the the Spitfire <laughs> for the first time. That's so <laughs> dope. Uh, he's a fun guy. I'd like I would love to have a couple of drinks with that dude. Uh, nice. You know. uh, my favorite uh, sea orientated scene is when the last boat or destroyer capsizes. And the way they fuck with angles and the water rushing up to swallow the ship and the boys crying and screaming and jumping into the water, the the soundtrack is going off, but the, mostly the the ship capsizing, or not capsizing, but fully being engulfed by the water. That scene, as far as the, the water and the ships go, is my favorite part. It's like, oh, wait, what am I looking at? The water's coming up to meet me? Like, there's the top of the ship. Someone's hanging off of it. Now their legs are in the water. It's crazy. Yeah, it, it's and it, it it's again, it speaks to that. Um, one of the things I learned about Christopher Nolan today is just the guy's sense of reality. Like he's really, really very adamant about making things as real as possible. Like except timelines. I don't know. In other movies, yes. In Dunkirk, I think this one makes sense. I just. Yeah, you've you've swayed me on. I mean, I did feel I didn't hate the timeline thing in this movie. I think it's really well done, but you explained I, it really well. If I can just say one last thing about that, I promise I'll be keep it very brief. If he hadn't have done it that way, I think that this movie would have become a pedestrian and over, over, over uh, dramatized. That's what would, I think. It would have been also just another war movie. Yeah, it wouldn't. It wouldn't have been a Christopher Nolan war movie. It wouldn't have been special. What? No, it wouldn't have been a Christopher Nolan war movie. That's a hundred percent true. It might have, you know. And can we talk about 1917 real quick before we move on to our? Yeah. <laughs> like, Sam Mendes is a fine filmmaker. Absolutely. But I like this film more because I don't like. See, now I'm contradicting myself because I was going to say I don't like gimmicks. And the one-shot thing in 1917 was the whole selling point. And it's a beautiful-looking film, and the story's great, and there's some brilliant moments in it. But the gimmicks in Dunkirk are they're, – they're movie tricks. And it's to, like, make the film better, not to sell it more as much as stuff in something like 1917 is. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean – um, I'd like to hear you expand upon it a little bit, but no. The reason I'm hesitating is because I'm going to contradict myself, but I think that's fine, right? Well, what do you find in Dunkirk that's a gimmick? I don't, I don't find a lot of – I don't feel – Dunkirk doesn't feel like it's got a lot of gimmicky. I mean 1917 was kind of gimmicky. You fully like convinced me about the time, my timeline gripe, and that's the only thing I would say was a gimmick because it's a popular Christopher Nolan thing. Mm-hmm. But you're talking about the technical side of this stuff that we didn't hear about, you know, wasn't crammed down our throats for the promotional period of this of Dunkirk, like 1917 was. You're talking about they're like pioneering filmmaking to get make this movie look the way that it looks. Yes, and and I'm I'm sure that shooting 1917, they did some stuff that probably no one had ever really done before. I, I, I'm not trying to take that away from them. However, um, like just an example of Dunkirk is like the, the scenes that you see in the planes when, when they're not like actually flying airplanes through the air, 
They are in Southern California. They are on the edge of a cliff overlooking the ocean. And they built a gimbal that hung off the cliff. And Christopher Nolan and one of the other assistant directors literally had handles. And they moved this couple hundred pound rig through the air in the exact motions that these airplanes would be flying and they filmed it out over the ocean you know like they they went to lengths in this movie to give you everything they possibly could as real as they possibly could i mean they really did and it's impressive winston would be proud oh yeah for sure no doubt moving on to our number one Shining moment of this mm. film. If you're ready, I am, friend. Yay, yay! It's the sound. The sound, the sound, the goddamn sound! Not just the soundtrack done by popular Christopher Nolan collaborator Hans Zimmer, but the sound design of the film. Uh, the, the soundtrack and the soundtrack to War and the soundtrack to the film interact in a way that. For me, I've never experienced a film like this in the theater sonically in my life. I, I remember I never forget the first shot, bullet fired in this film made me jump out of my fucking seat. Absolutely. And throughout the film, the gunfire is so fucking loud. So th- I believe 30 Dunkirk veterans came to the premiere of the film and they thought that it was a really good realistic job portraying the events but the one thing they said to a, a laughing christopher nolan as that i re- that i read was they said the gunfire and the planes were way too were much louder <laughs> than they were in real life which i thought was was interesting well i i i think that that is definitely the license you take because oh i, I don't that's not a complaint i just thought no. it was a funny tidbit well, what I was going to get at is, like, the thing is, like, those dudes have lived through it. You know what I mean? So, like, hearing it, like, it's not going to have, like, they're going to be, this is not, it doesn't feel real as it could. But, like, to people like you and I, having the sound on the that point shit, got like. Across, that this shit is intense. Yes, and absolutely. When you're watching a film and every minute or two, so when One Direction are in the hull of the ship and the water's slowly coming up and. The, the maybe you can help me flesh this out, but someone starts shooting the boat, whether it be for target practice or knowing that there are people inside the ship. And every time the bullet is fired at the ship, it's so I jump, like I flinch, like every time, even though I know it's coming. Mm-hmm. And it just it adds to the realism and the experience of the film. And I've never like jumped that much watching a movie in my life. I mean, no, I agree. I mean, the sound is just this next level type shit. I mean, it so. This film was uh, nominated for, let's see, three, four, five, six, seven, eight Oscars. It won three. They were film editing, sound editing, and sound mixing. And it was nominated for original score, best picture, directing, cinematography, and production design. So the fact that it won those particular Oscars does not surprise me because the way this film is mixed and set and presented to you as an audience member is, is absolutely immaculate. It, it, everything from, uh, buckles clicking on seat belts to the, the way that 
since we're going to get there, we'll get there now, uh, the way that uh, the voice of the pilots is muffled and it's hard to understand them. Well, it was the 1940s and technology was what the fuck it was. And it was kind of fucking hard to hear each other. You were flying through the fucking air like that. You know? Yeah. It's not exactly easy. So, but I think that every aspect of this movie was thought of as far as the sound goes. And I just think that it's just some crazy next level shit. Yeah. Amazing, powerful stuff. I, yeah. I loved reading that. There's, a, there's there's an incessant ticking throughout the film, and it's Christopher Nolan's personal stopwatch that Hans Zimmer recorded and then ran through a bunch of synthesizers to manipulate the sound. It's another element of the film that puts you on the edge of your seat, that makes reminds you that time is of the essence here. The Germans are fucking coming. The French are barely hanging on, and we got 300-plus thousand people on this beach you got to get off. It, it just... It, makes you tense it makes you go out it makes you want to tell them hurry up go 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 it does and it appears uh you know i don't know for 100 percent fact but it appears to me in places like when tommy first you know at the very beginning of the film he gets ambushed and he's running and he, he comes through that channel and he walks out onto the beach and you hear him as he's walking through that little alleyway uh it's, it appears as his, as his heartbeat which I think is brilliant. Oh, that is, you, that is you know, and then when they're carrying the, the stretcher down the, the mole and the bombs are dropping and they're shaking and they're doing, you know, walking a plank through a fucking broken section. And there are these strings that hit just like on, 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 on a, uh, almost like a, a, a metronomic like level. I don't even know if that's a word, probably not, but like it is now, you know, what a metronome would do if it had get, effect. I think we get what you're saying, yeah. Correct. So um, I think that those are some really, really good moments. And, and on the, the battleship that sinks, when the French soldier op- is opening the door, you know, and the ship is going completely sideways and he's climbing stairs at like two different angles at the exact same time. And he's just trying to get the door open so all those people who are trapped in there could have a chance to get out. And it's this constant, like, the sound in this film does such an a fucking amazing job of building tension. Like, such a great job. So another device that Christopher Nolan and his team of sound designers employ here is something called a shepherd tone, which is another illusion. And what it does is it, it it's like a, it makes, it makes the, the listener think that it's progressively getting louder, what you're hearing. They mm-hmm. applied this to to the whole sound design of the film, whether it be the dialogue or the sound effects. And it, it makes you think that something is coming for the hour and 45 minutes of the film. How brilliant is that? It's so cool. Well, it, I think, no, it is. And it's, it's, uh, I think it's a, it's a great device that's used because like, how would war feel? You would, would you not feel at any moment something's gonna fucking happen you know and it's great that they use that to like bring that sense on that's it's great my favorite part of the score is that section that we've already raved about when the boys are finally getting saved and there's oil in the water the the it's, the score is so beautiful it's just it's big and there's big horns being used there and that, the music in that scene is just amazing it's like beautiful and scary and it's the, my other favorite part is when the boats are arriving, and we already talked about that, just how sweeping and beautiful and with Green Day playing in the background. It just 
summons all your emotions from the mid nineties. Absolutely. No, you're right. There's, it's, it's almost unfair that a movie has such good sound effects to capture the planes and the bombs and the guns and just, you know, the the sinking ships and everything that it, it, it captures on top of such a good score. You know, like a like legitimate traditional score, you know, which was again nominated, but it, it's rare to get something that, you know what I mean? Like that's like when when yeah, you know, I was, it, I'm watching the Oscars and like one of the Bourne movies wins best sound editing, and I'm like, okay, that makes sense. Bunch of bullets. Like imagine that movie won best score. You know, that would be, that that that'd be intense. Totally, and it. It makes it a modern film as it blends these, you know, Hans Zimmer uses synthesizers and things like that. And the Christopher Nolan hiss, which I won't do again, even though I love doing it. So these modern elements are being infused with traditional. Do (laughs) it. Sorry, I ran out of breath. That's all right. That's impeccable. You're welcome. But again, modern and classic sound elements being blended to create this masterpiece. It's amazing. It, it is. And my final comment that I have for this sound is just... The, the planes? It's the planes, man. It, and it's, it's very similar to the, the, the noise you're making. It is, you know, it's another usage of... It's kind of a remix of what Nolan does, but it's just um, I love how menacing those planes sound and and the sound way like evil man they do they sound like pure fucking evil and that's what they they are like no human being should be subjected to hearing that noise and being being on like a mole which is effectively effectively like a pier you know a, you know a jetty a fucking long peninsula whatever you want to call it I mean you should not be subjected to hearing that sound and knowing that if that person so chooses, they could drop a bomb on you and there's nowhere for you to go. No human should really have to feel that. That's, that, that's some insane shit. Yeah. The names of those German bomber planes were some really long German word, but they were nicknamed Stuka bombers. And that sound that you hear is a real thing. And they were called Jericho trumpets Yep, that they put on the planes as they made their descent to make the bomb, and it became yep. like a big thing for German uh, propaganda and morale. It was it was a, the big flex, like we're coming, motherfucker, and you hear it, and it made everyone there scared shitless and run around. So again, a realistic aspect of this of what we're watching from that time, but it's enhanced through modern technology. No, absolutely. I mean, th- so those things were those things were like attachments that they put on the planes that would suck in air as they were diving at that height. Okay, rate, right? Is that I'm, I'm, I just I'm read the I just read the name of them. I feel like I, I, didn't I read about the technology of it, but I feel like I saw sometime that they were like a device. That makes sense, that, you know. So anyway, no, you know, absolutely. It's just ooh, scary shit. Like I don't know. I mean, I live near an airport myself, uh, and I. <laughs> 
and I enjoy the the sound of the planes. I, I I really do. Like it doesn't bother me. I'm an, I'm an early riser. I sleep well, so you know, fuck it. But uh, I kind of like hearing the planes go by. But like, I just like we you mentioned it earlier. Like the idea of my city being bombed. Um, just like you know, you're not going out to like just get any old thing. You know what I mean? Not going to get a bagel. No, you're not going out. I mean, fuck. I'm not even going out to get a fucking beer. You know, it's, a, it's amazing that those people couldn't do that, but chose to get in their weekend yachts and go save some soldiers. It's just amazing. True. True. Can we talk about Tom Hardy's lack of a performance? So he's like top billing in this film. Yeah. He's, he's a world renowned character actor, right? One of my but, favorite parts of the movie. But not a lot of opportunity for face acting here. Oh, but he's got some eye acting, friend. Oh, oh! I did not see that coming. Mm. A new mm. addition, eye acting. Mm. I got some face acting. I'm gonna hit you with in a little later. Well, I'm gonna save that though. But Mr. Tom Hardy gets the eye acting award of the century. Okay, all he gets. I mean, you you see a flash of dude, the dude's see that mug, mug at the end. Did we just at say the mug? beginning? You get to and see yeah. it at the beginning. And at the end, and it's like, I just want to give a shout out to Christopher Nolan because, you know, again, they they had an idea of using unknown actors and they achieved that for the most part, you know, but I love the fact that the most famous really. actor in the film, like straight up covers his face for the entirety of his role. I love that. I think that's uh, it's just a little subtlety that I enjoy. So. I imagine Tom Hardy went to lengths to learn about being a pilot. I think he's just that kind of actor. So maybe he knows where to look and shit. I don't know. Looks seemed believable to me. But that end shot when he's out of the plane and it's on he's set it ablaze and he's waiting to be captured. Uh it's pretty it's a beautiful moment. It is very, very beautiful. It's also a little like reminiscent of Batman, but that's okay. Again. Yeah. Uh, you had a, let's get right to the face acting. You had a face acting part. Not a lot of opportunities for it, but you found one. Yeah. So um, you said this this actor's name earlier, and I don't. It's it's whatever for me. He's Gilderoy from the Harry Potter movies. So that's that's that guy. Um, you don't know who Kenneth Branagh is? Yeah, that guy. No, he's had a great career, man. I'm not trying to hate. Like for okay. real. <laughs> epic Krill. My other favorite role. He, so he's Gilderoy, but aside from that. Gildor Lockhart. He is Dr. Loveless Gil- from Wild this. Wild West. Excuse me. Okay. okay. I can't Come wait on. for your girlfriend to hear the way you said Gilderoy. <laughs> yeah, she's going to punish me. It's going to so, be great. <laughs> folks, I'm terrible at this whole thing. I just look. Once a year, I watch those movies because my partner loves them. And we get down on them. And I love it. And it's like a whole thing. But aside from that. I read the first two books. I'm sorry. I'm not. I'm not a. I'm not a pro. You don't know any Shakespeare. <laughs> oh, so that guy. Yeah, that's the face acting award of the movie right there. Okay, especially when he's looking through the binoculars at the boats on the horizon. And what does he see? What does he see? He sees all these little ships, and he sees oh, home. Home. He sees home. He pulls the binoculars down and he's just got fucking tears in his eyes, man. Damn it. So I thought you were good. gonna I thought you were gonna go with Killian Murphy's performance. Okay, that was good. 
No, no doubt. L- I mean, little... it's fine. It's nothing. He's a great actor, but again, that's not really what this movie's about. Like, yeah, I mean, in my notes, I have the actors listed, and like for Cillian Murphy, I just like I ha- and I have their parts, so just so I could reference them. Uh, but I have like for Cillian Murphy, I just put with Cillian Murphy. <laughs> like, there's no part. He's a very handsome guy. He is, but he does a. I mean, he does do a fantastic job, and I think that his character is used in a great man. I mean, and I think one of my favorite interactions with his character is when he's talking to Peter uh, Dawson's son, and he asks if uh, George is going to be okay, and Peter kind of stares at him and tells him, "Yeah, yeah, he's going to be okay." And That's he, a cool moment because it is because he needed character it. under yeah that character understands what. He's the soldier's been through, and he doesn't need to also know that he killed a 17-year-old boy on accident, a total accident, you know? A- absolutely. And and I think— Our boy George, get in the paper. That part makes me cry, too. It does. Me, too. Hits me hard. No, no doubt. No doubt. But I think the last thing about the, the, the face acting slash eye acting that I will say is that scene when Tom Hardy's character realizes he's out of gas— and he's got to make a decision whether he wants to fly somewhere safely or he wants to continue to try to do his best to make sure that the people on the beach can escape or evacuate effectively. And I think when I said I acting, I just think what I mean by that, again, it's a fun term, but it is kind of it's remarkable. It's kind of remarkable how someone – can't have a moment on film like that when they literally are covered up all except for your view of their eyes through some goggles. Um, and they do such a good job of portraying like what is effectively happening in that moment and the decision that they're making. I just think that that's, that that's not something that just any, anybody can do. So that's what I mean. You know, it's a, it's a, another, again, a great moment. He's just like, fuck it. Pulling the e-brake, turning around. He knows he's either going to get killed or be captured, and he's our, yeah. he's, our, he's our hero. Yeah, absolutely. Why do you think this is such a short film compared to Chris, other Christopher Nolan films? It's an, literally an hour shorter than Interstellar. Well, mostly because I think Interstellar is like an overly articulate, like – just like yeah watch me be better than you vomit stew kind of a movie but uh i interstellar vomit stew i mean come on like no um pretentious vomit stew like you got to give a a, some context to the vomit um but i think i just think that uh this this is i think this is christopher nolan's most simple film like in reality you know, you could say some of his yeah, earlier movies is. were simple, but like again, he fucks with the timeline and perceptions so much that they become complex. But like this one is com- it was complex to capture, but the idea of it is very pure, and I think that that's why it's so short. Because if it's any longer, I just don't know. You know, because like today, I- I'm like looking at the film and I'm thinking, okay, so there's 30 minutes left from the time. You have the boats on the horizon shot. I'm like, wow, this movie's only an hour 45, and there's still 30 minutes left after like what you could arguably say is the like climax, like apex of the film is that moment. And it's like, 
damn, that's a that's a long time. Like, not every war movie takes that approach. You know, yeah. most of them save that for the end of the film. Yeah, it works. Yeah. What else you got before we wrap up today? Um, another thing about the sound, I just wanted to point out is kind of the the other side of the coin on that um, is the quietness, the use of quietness in this movie also strikes Absolutely. me. And it reminds me of something that you used to say, which I think if I remember correctly was because the Pixies used to say, which was loud, quiet, loud. Okay. And it, and it just, I did not invent, invent no, I didn't think you invented that. It was you, you know, you shared it with me from another source. It wasn't that you invented it, but, it because the Pixies music is kind of like that, and I think that was the name of like one of their documentaries or some shit. Yeah, it's it's like a a a, a way of writing music that was popularized in by like post punk music and like Nirvana adopted that where it's like quiet verses draws you in, big loud choruses that you scream along to, and it's just a song structure style. Uh, I I'm sure Billy Joe has employed. Uh, employed rather <laughs> I think that we'll stick with the bands that you originally mentioned and let's just say that obviously that method was successful and I think that it was deployed in this this film as well like there are moments where there's quiet and it draws you in and they're very like and I in particular I noticed it seems like every time that Tommy uh, comes to the beach there's this quiet quietness i mean because he first arrives and the second time he comes to the beach is after a ship has fucking sank and he's been towed in on the back of like a fucking rowboat through like whatever i'm sure that ocean is not cool i mean not warm excuse me you know so i i I just find that to be well used my favorite quiet moment is we have already referenced it, but when the plane is out of gas and coasting over everybody. Yes. Yeah. Another teary moment. Great. Great. Yeah. You got anything else you want to touch on before we close Dunkirk up? Mm, no. I got nothing. I, I say think we... it's a good movie. <laughs> I think that's an understatement. Yeah. This is. is, I think, the second masterpiece we've talked about. And I strongly encourage everyone to go check Dan Cake out. I'd like to dedicate this show to George. Oh, absolutely. That's, yeah, you know, um, I just want to be useful, sir. That's the quote from George that sticks out in my mind. It, it, it hits me like after I watch it the first time and I know the story. When I hear George say that to Mr. Dawson, I'm always like, mm. Damn it, George. Damn it, George. Damn it, George. All right, this one's for George. Cheers. Cheers to George. Cheers to George. We'll see you next time, y'all. Later. Once again, thank you so much for listening to this week's episode, friends. Spotify, Apple Podcasts. Give us a like, give us a follow, and tell your friends. Be kind, and we'll see you next time. Next episode, The March Sisters. Woo!